I saw this article where there's a llama farm that's actually allowing you to rent a llama to bomb your Zoom meeting. If you had the choice to like have anybody Zoom bomb one of your virtual conferences, who would you want to have there? Flavor Flav. Or maybe David Hasselhoff. You don't need a celebrity right now. You need like the guy that played Urkel. Urkel jumps on and shares his screen. And then he says, did I do that? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome back to Touchpoint. You're joining us as we sit here and record episode number 169. 169 of Touchpoint, mid-quarantine. Here we are, Reed and Chris. Well, um, Reed, you may be sitting. I'm actually standing at my standing desk. I've made a decision to stand. I do a lot of sitting at nights when I'm watching like Netflix and Hulu and those other things. So might as well stand all day, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a stand-up desk as well. And so I just I kind of vary throughout the day. Well, we are still in the midst of quarantine, uh, although I don't know for how much longer. We certainly appreciate everyone that is listening because we know that you've got a lot of options. Whether it's a podcast or not, you got a lot of other entertainment options for you right now. And so we appreciate you tuning in and listening and telling a friend and subscribing and checking out all of our new shows, the newest being... The new normal. That's set to launch imminently, like in the next couple of days. Thought-provoking conversations about the future of healthcare as an industry, and much larger than what we talk about, Reed. We're looking at policy, we're looking at public health, we're looking at a physician perspective. I hope it to be a, a podcast that when people listen in, they take away with a lot of thoughts and ideas and really look at a way that we can change the industry itself. So if you have not, go out to touchpoint.health. You can check out the trailer for the new normal and click through and subscribe over on iTunes, set up to stream it on Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening and check out the other shows while you're there as well. We would appreciate that uh, greatly. So let's take a, a brief pause here and we'll be right back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, once again, like many of the shows that we've been talking about lately, 
we're going to be talking a lot about healthcare consumerism and the consumer mindset in today's day and age. And I think it's an important topic because a lot of people are talking about the shifts in the way people are thinking and consuming and reacting. What does that look like post-COVID era? I, I think is going to be interesting. We're starting to see some of the studies. I think by the time this, this airs, actually, my place of employment, Gerard, will actually be uh, coming out with a study uh, along these lines as well. So it's, it's top of mind, certainly. But the thing is, though, is that consumer patterns shift a lot and their mindsets shift a lot. While we could sit here, we can actually, you know, get basically a litmus of what people are thinking about right now. And many studies do that as we start to advance through this. And even though we may be, you know, soon be able to go back to work and start to resume a pseudo normal life, so to speak, we're going to be dealing with the, the complexity of this pandemic for a number of years. And so it's also important for us to, as professionals in the industry, to kind of keep an understanding of how to stay attuned to what the shifts in those mindsets might be, which leads us to one of the first articles that I found, which is actually kind of a fascinating article that's called Sensing and Shaping the Post-COVID Era. And it's really a deep dive into understanding the mindset of people as they kind of work through a crisis. One of the key kind of components to this article, which is probably not completely out of left field if you you really think about things, but that a crisis can fundamentally reshape certain people's beliefs, behaviors, you know, that type thing, right? So this lasting shift in social attitudes, policy, work, consumption will likely also emerge from you know, what we're talking about here, which is this COVID-19 world that we've been in. So that's kind of the, the, I guess, cornerstone of the article. They talk about some plausible approaches that might happen. One plausibility, maybe that we could see a greater focus on crisis preparedness, system reliance, social inequality, social solidarity, access to healthcare. Those all seem like, you know, things that we in the healthcare industry think about a lot. But it's also easy, they say, to see how the crisis could accelerate nationalistic tendencies. And we're actually seeing that happen as well. We're basically looking at ways where we can entrench and maybe shut off the rest of the world. We're seeing both of those mindsets right now play out in American life, aren't we? We're all becoming preppers. That's what you're saying. (laughs) They say in here at an individual level, it's also possible that we may adjust how we view things like work-life balance. We've probably talked about that for, well, we have talked about that for years. But now, you know, we think about what's truly important to us. And, you know, someone has said, you have to stay home. And we've had this time, it's been really interesting to spend with the folks that we live with and, you know, really hone in on what's important and spend time and things like that. This may be an interesting, just like we've talked about the escalation of telehealth and kind of what that means going forward after talking about it for years is probably similar in what we've talked about for years around this idea of work-life balance. Now, what's interesting about this article is they have a lot of information in it. They have some charts that kind of describe how crisis can lead to long-lasting changes. They actually bring up some things around historical examples of how crisis has shifted throughout the history of, of the United States. But what I think we should focus in on is how do organizations and even people adapt to these shifting needs and the way shifting occurs? Because inevitably, change is going to occur to our society How can we, being responsible now for understanding our customers, our patients' mindsets, how can we start to adapt to those shifting needs? 
we'll not only have to adapt to those needs, we'll also have to proactively shape perceived needs and outcomes through various different things that are going to be reflective in our healthcare industry, like innovation, education, even promotional activities. And the article goes through uh, eight measures, and in this case, they're saying companies can take to not only uh, sense that this, but exploit it and even shape this post-COVID-19 uh, reality. The first one they talk about is to, number one, expect change and actually look ahead. Stressing on the fact that we tend to be a little bit myopic and even insular when under threat. But of course, we have to accept the fact that change is there. And that's not an easy thing to do. We as humans, we don't like change. We've been sitting with this long enough now where we're feeling like, okay, change is inevitable. Change is going to come. And that really begs some of the key questions like what's next and and with what consequences and what opportunities arise. The second point they talk about is understanding broader social shifts. You know, there's going to be opportunities, obviously, as we think about how we're doing life differently that are that are born out of these altered consumer needs, some of it being frustrations. And so listening to the consumer, they say, is very vital. Traditional surveys, they say, are only going to tell you about existing products and category needs and uses, but they may not really explicitly be aware of what these emerging needs are. And so companies need to look more broadly at how these attitudes are shifting to understand, you know, maybe where they need to shift as an organization or as the leader of a company, kind of where you need to go. One example they give in here is people's attitude towards working from home or remote, you know, shifts, if you will. We've been forced into that model now. So much like telehealth, right? We've been forced into doing something. Well, now what does that mean? Everybody says, this is wonderful. We should keep doing this. What kind of impact is that going to have on commercial real estate, transportation, certainly, you know, other segments like home remodeling, you know, et cetera. Third one here, scrutinize granular high frequency data. I love when we talk about data because uh, that kind of hits close to home here. Sometimes the data that we look at, those aggregates, those averages, even episodic data does not really reveal some of those weak signals for change, companies need to reanalyze high frequency data, like credit card transactions, purchasing patterns, very granular level data in order to potentially spot some emerging trends that might be occurring. Obviously, we know we're all going out and buying groceries from the grocery stores more, but that doesn't mean that once this crisis is over, where we go back to a life that's a little bit more near normal, that level of purchasing will continue to occur. Another thing I think about is at-home delivery. You're bringing food to your home or Amazon or whatever, are we going to continue at that rapid rate? Are those businesses going to be solvent as they move forward? Or should we looking more at what specifically is being purchased? What are the conveniences that they're looking for by using these services? And how can we embrace those? Another point they say here is you want to identify your own revealed weakness. I think this is probably obvious, and maybe we've even seen it some to this point, but a crisis Anything that stresses the system is going to expose those weak pieces just by definition. So were we not as prepared as we should have been? I don't know. But those types of weaknesses, the things that you uh, can identify are going to be opportunities for you. You look, you identify the weaknesses, and then you know the opportunity or the onus is really on leadership to then act on those and use that as an opportunity, either better a product, a service, whatever it is, to better serve consumers. 
The fifth one they have here, uh, study regions further ahead in the crisis. We know this from a scientific and healthcare perspective that we're already doing that. We're looking at China, Korea to really try to address the pandemic. We're even seeing what's happening in Europe as ways to do what things are right, what things are wrong. The other factors of their economy, we also should be kind of looking at seeing how things are like now that China has waned past the immediate onbreak of coronavirus, how have they shifted their lives? Leaders can better predict what changes are likely to stick or be shaped by studying what happens in those markets first. It's not bad for us to be fast followers to people that are being successful in other industries. They may give us some indications where, where we may need to go. Okay, the sixth one is to scan for maverick activity. Ah, yes. Top Gun. Uh, yeah. The idea here is obviously, and if you think about it from a healthcare standpoint, you look at those uh, startups, a lot of times they're going to be smaller organizations that are a little more nimble, a little bit more flexible. What bets are they making? How are they changing? Are they trying to predict in some way, shape, or form the consumer need based on behavioral patterns, et cetera? And start asking yourself, who's making smart bets? Who seems to be getting ahead? Where are we missing out? How can we fit into this? You know, what's still going to be the response to it? Because again, we think about disruption in an industry a lot of times based on what someone does, but this is disruption in the industry based on just the world. Look at that and understand how you're going to react. And a lot of times you can, you can see and kind of get that, that litmus test, if you will, based on what some of these smaller, more nimble companies are doing. Number seven, look at which new patterns reduce friction. I like this one because this is sort of the inherent concept around user-centered design in that you're, what you're doing is you're looking for any kind of frictions in the journey, right? Any, any things that can cause unnecessary delays, costs, complexities, or what have you. And spoiler alert, Reed, we in healthcare have a lot of friction in the way we've traditionally delivered care prior to the outbreak. In what we're going through right now, we have adopted habits that really are out of necessity, but some of those habits actually lead to areas where some of that friction might go away. They give an example. We may be forced to eat only canned food from our pantries during a crisis, but many of us are likely to return promptly to consuming fresh food when it's over. Some of those habits, though, are more likely to stick. And I'm thinking about telemedicine as a really great example in healthcare. That's going to be one area where that's a reduced amount of friction to access care. Of course, it's going to be there. The eighth one and final one, which I think is very hopeful, it's uh, maintain hope and a growth orientation. With an almost guaranteed recession, I mean, I guess maybe we're in a recession right now, but everybody is predicting, obviously, post-crisis, whatever, whatever that means, uh, that there'll be a recession. What they're saying here is that's not a reason to postpone innovation and investment. This is kind of like the buy low, sell high scenario. You always see the entrepreneurs making tons of money because they're buying all the real estate, you know, to flip it later, and, you know, all those types of things. We're looking at this opportunity now to say, okay, well, we've got an opportunity now to actually grow and innovate because of all the disruption and disruptions and things like that. So we need to continue, even though it may be a little counterintuitive, may continue to invest in uh, new ideas in people in that, in that disruptive uh, mindset. 
And with that kind of point there, what we'll do is we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the study that was done about consumer reactions to COVID right now, but then really focus in on some of the trends that other industries are seeing that potentially could have applicability here in healthcare right after the break. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. All right, so let's jump in and look at... um you know, what consumers are actually telling us. You found this study from TalundaCorporate.com. Anyway, it's coronavirus updates and research. And by the way, this study they've done over, you know, they do it every two weeks. So it's more of a pulse study, so to speak. 49% of consumers right now are concerned about getting essential supplies. That actually number has dropped a little bit, which which is good. That shows that the supply chain is working. 48% are ill or are caring for a loved one. But I think the biggest thing here, Reed, is, is that 60% of Americans right now are concerned about the effect of this virus on the wider society. And that makes sense because it's a little bit of unknown. Another interesting data point, almost one in three Americans feel insecure about their employment. That includes anything from like a reduction or just an outright you know, termination of an employment opportunity or, or what they're doing now. Two in five, uh, so 41% specifically, Americans now rate themselves extremely likely to make their current lifestyle changes permanent. That one's interesting to me, and I think there's probably some science to this, obviously. How many, what do you have to do for it to become a habit? What is it? Like how many days in a row? Or We've hit that number, right? Like we've been at home this long. I even was thinking to myself, pre-us taping this podcast, you know, we're obviously not eating out. We probably won't go back to eating out as much as we were. Some of that is maybe overstated a little bit just because of schedules are going to go back to the way they were at some point. Uh, but I think that's interesting that people are, are starting to kind of lock down on, on these changes. But some of the changes are not necessarily that good. I mean, we've heard a lot about this, this increased drinking of alcohol. Part of that is tapping into like a coping mechanism. But I think that might have some concerns about their long-term health. But here are some other things that the studies found that the consumers are doing to take actions to kind of bolster their health. 75% of them are washing their hands more frequently. I know I am. 62% are using products to help prevent the spread of germs. Lysol and others, by the way, Lysol outside your body, don't take it on the inside of your body. Just public service announcement. 50% started taking vitamins and or some type of supplement. Uh, That's good. 35% uh, exercising more frequently. I can attest to this. I have uh, have a Peloton and I've been on it uh, every day since I've been home at this point. That's I'm, I'm 40 straight days. 31% consuming food and drink with health benefits. Kind of coincides probably with the working out or the exercising more frequently, as well as the vitamins and that kind of thing. You can see how some of this ties together. I made that a conscientious effort now that I'm cooking at home much more. We try to cook healthy, right? So we try to, you know, have have healthier foods. This study also asked, like, looking into the future, what the consumers look forward to the most 
39% of them said they're looking forward to being more health conscious because of this. Close to that, 36% of them said they're looking forward to going out to eat or going to the movies. (laughs) So 35% said they were going to save money. Another 35% said they're going to be more optimistic. I guess the people that aren't saving their money, they're going to take some sort of a holiday. People are talking about being more environmentally conscious. There's some people, 21%, spending more money. Being less materialistic, there's like kind of this weird yin and yang to some of this stuff where either people have, you know, said, okay, you know what, I'm going to make some lifestyle changes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Or they're seeing the results where they've been forced into this, like, you know, saving money, for example, you know, probably they're not spending as much because they're not out and about. And they're like, you know what, I need to make this change. And then there's other people that are ready to get back to it, I guess. 38% believe that personal health will be a bigger issue for them in the future, and 28% of them plan to improve personal self-care to be better prepared for the future. What that means is that the consumer, the COVID-19 consumer, and even the post-COVID-19 consumer, a fair number of them, well... I guess 38 and 28% is not a fair number of them, but some of them are actually thinking about being healthier and being ready and more prepared. And that's going to have a direct impact on how we in the health system are going to start interacting with these post-COVID healthcare consumers. Let's shift a little bit here and talk about after the virus. Is that a good zombie movie? (laughs) What is that? I've seen that one before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think Nick Cage is in it. It's a, an article, obviously, that you uh, you track down uh, after the virus, 10 consumer trends for post-coronavirus world. And it's from uh, gift.com. Okay, now what's interesting about this article, what they're looking for is smaller trends that are going to become actually much bigger in the post-COVID world. And they're not really related to healthcare, but I thought it would be fun, Reed, for us to kind of talk about a few of these and see how they actually apply to healthcare and see if we can actually design healthcare solutions that support this. The first one is uh, one about virtual experience. They call it the virtual experience economy. We've heard about these virtual tours of museums that people can now go on, and there's all these ways to bring a virtual experience to the computer screen. I even heard about children are going through graduation from their elementary schools through Minecraft, right? They're even embracing these computer game environments. Let's think about how that could potentially apply to us in healthcare. There are already some that are, are somewhat adjacent. I mentioned Peloton earlier. That's fitness or wellness. That's obviously one of these experiences that you can participate with others. You know, there's some sort of status level to it. You get little badges. There's the gamification piece. Um, I think that's an interesting one that might could be tied into the wellness aspect of of healthcare. So, uh, you know, another thing that they talk about here, shop streaming. Don't know that I've ever heard that term before looking at this uh, this <laughs> article, but apparently the Skift wrote about it back in 2017. Uh, is an emerging trend in Asia. It's kind of a, a melding of e-commerce, live streaming type worlds, if you will. Does this bring anything to mind uh, of anything that you do in life? A close experience is when you try to actually see what the newest restaurants look like by looking at what maybe Instagram influencers are doing on their Instagram stories. I mean, this is taking it to a whole nother level, right? This is actually combining those things together even creating television shows, immersive programs that are entertainment 
as well as commerce. So as you're going through this experience, you're able to purchase things. And what I think is really kind of interesting in healthcare, I know we talk a lot about having virtual tours of your birthing facilities, perhaps, right? That could be a a really great extension of those virtual tours is to allow for people maybe viewing it from their computer screen to be able to then very quickly, like within the video stream itself, be able to say, this looks great to me. I want to reserve my spot, right? And actually engage right to care right there. Kind of continue along that thought process there. You're watching the tour of L&D, uh, what if you were able to say, like in that, you know, you were able to customize your experience, like going through the tour. So when you showed up, that's the way it was. So you want the chair for your spouse or whatever, like in this corner. That'd be super fascinating if you could, uh, if you could do that. Talk about it a hyper-personalized experience too, mm-hmm, right? And then mm-hmm, you're, you don't even have to show up. You, If you know you choose your whole experience, there you go. And that'd be a really easy thing to do. Let's pick one more each. One, The one I was really kind of curious about is ambient wellness. We are very concerned about wellness. We're you know washing our hands, et cetera. We're doing all these different things to stay safe. In the future, that's going to naturally cascade into various different things. So you think about like going to a sports stadium in the future, obviously they're going to have more sanitizer. They're going to have even social distancing initially. That's going to go into restaurants too. A lot of this is around staying healthy and being now that we're hyper aware of how we could potentially be exposed to some of these diseases, it's going to be really important. From an ambient wellness standpoint, point. We do some of this already, maybe, uh, to some extent. When you think about inpatient versus the outpatient experience, I think obviously this can potentially lead towards you know either side. And I think there's a, a, an opportunity. They talk about this air filtration system or you, know, you see some things. I think what we'll ultimately see is us taking things from other industries. So like air, air, when I see this about air, air filtration in here, it makes me think of casinos and like how they defy the air. And I think we'll look at, well, how do some of these other entities take, you know, this wellness scenario and how can we move that into, in this case, hospitals and healthcare systems. Another one that kind of jumps off to me here uh, of their list is uh, assisted development. You know, they talk about here is, you know, a, a side benefit, if you will, of people spending more time at home that people will actually uh, learn how to cook. <laughs> so because <laughs> because they have to. I think I even recommended HelloFresh, you know, or something like that a week or two ago. But with services like that, it's making it easier and easier, right? But there's an assistive piece to that, whether it's just the actual card, if you will, that's in the mill, or you can use the app or kind of walks you through uh, how to put it all together well. But I think from an assisted development standpoint, if you think about healthcare and, and wellness, could we not do this with cardiac rehab patients versus them coming back to the facility all the time? There's a community piece to it. So that's where some of the virtual part kind of weighs in. Again, back to kind of the Peloton piece, why I think it works so well is because you're you're taking classes with other people. You're not by yourself, so to speak. I know a lot of health systems do things where they have these programs where they, they teach nutrition potentially for people that are diabetics, recently mm-hmm, diagnosed mm-hmm, diabetics. Mm-hmm. How easy would it be for health systems to sort of adapt to this, almost like take a masterclass kind of approach, have featured their nutritionists, their doctors, walking through the preparation and having that in supplement with maybe nutritional boxes 
maybe subscription boxes. Think about putting all of that together and creating that as an offering to serve your community, particularly if your community is diverse, spread over a large uh, large area. This could be, potentially be a way to look at some of those more of those health and wellness programs that health systems tend to be doing and uh, aligning those to you know the virtual world, so to speak. This article features 10. They actually li- link to a deeper study that actually shows 15. So if you want to go even deeper, this is a great article to look at if you really want to spin your mind off to new innovative ways um, when you're looking at potentially redesigning the healthcare space. We want to now uh, pivot to the interview. Actually, about a month ago, maybe a little over a month ago, I sat down with Jane Saracen Khan, who is a prolific writer, public health expert, and she and I actually talked about the healthcare consumer. We did actually a deep dive in, into her book that she just recently wrote about the healthcare consumer. So this was like kind of really at the, the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of what she talks about are mindsets that are going to carry forward and kind of influence us as we move forward. So why don't we, after this break, listen into her thoughts? And it's a really great interview. So stick, stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I am literally beside myself excited to have a good conversation today with a dear friend, someone that I've been following and learning from for many years online, and someone that everyone who's listening and should should be very familiar with, and that is Jane Saracen Khan. Jane, welcome to the show today. Chris, I'm so delighted we can do this together. You're an old friend of mine too. And so uh, kumbaya all around. For those people listening in that may not know a little bit about you. So my formal training was in health economics at the University of Michigan. Go blue for all you Big Ten folks out there. And I have worked uh, since graduate school as a healthcare consultant my whole life. So that's the better part of 30 years, three zero, a long time. First with big firms in the U.S. And when I fell in love with my husband and married him, I lived in London for a few years where I got to work as a consultant with both the National Health Service when Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister and with the private sector where I really cut my teeth on health tech and pharmaceuticals after working with hospitals and health plans and doctors in the U.S. for a few years and then returned home and after a few years started my own uh, practice called Think Health. Think is the acronym for Technology, Health, Information, Networks, and Knowledge. And uh, that's who I've been for almost 20 years, 18 years on my own with a networked consultancy now. I work with lots of people on different projects and started my Health Populi blog in 2007 sort of the culmination of everything I know I know happened last year in May 2019 when I published my book Health Consuming, which is about the emergence of health consumerism and my vision for health citizenship in America, which we can talk about. Your background, your experience, your perspectives on this industry are very, very important. And having your voice as part of our podcast today is is really important. Uh, As you know, Reed and I have been doing this show for three years now, and we've talked about quite often about the role of the, the patient within 
the entire experience, even the, the role of the patient as a consumer in this space. How do you feel about the healthcare patient as a consumer? So my take is really through the lens in health economics, when we think about patients facing high deductibles, surprise medical bills, growing co-pays and quote, skin in the game, which was uh, over 10 years ago, what so-called consumer directed healthcare was based on. If you'd ask a patient then whether they felt like a consumer, um, they would say, well, no, and they certainly didn't feel consumer directed because they didn't 10 years ago or more have the tools that we actually have now through a little bit greater transparency and really the Amazonification, if you will, of expectations, people uh, taking on the mantle of do-it-yourself everything. In my talks about consumerism, I uh, talk about what happened in the recession. Again, I'm an economist, so let me just throw that lens in here because you don't get that in your podcast from other people. So it's important really to think about that patient um, and their personal health economics through the recession, people really took on more DIY stuff. They shopped more at Lowe's and Home Depot. They gardened more. They didn't go to sort of the middle market restaurants at the time. They went really down market or really up market, but they kind of bifurcated eating out in the 2008-2010 framework. In the meantime, all that DIY ethos that we learned from HGTV and Food Network, uh, the rise of Rachel Ray and Emeril and the celebrity chef, really bled over into our healthcare expectations for more DIY. People started to buy more over-the-counter drugs, skip going to the doctor, and look for solutions in retail health, even back then, 2008 through 2010. Those muscles stuck. And now um, in this era of ACA um, insurance marketplaces, etc., people have taken on more DIY in terms of applying for health insurance. We saw in the Medicare Part D launch for um, prescription drugs a few years ago that older people started to go online for the first time to seek those health plans, the Part D plans. If they couldn't, they went to the community center, the library, or asked their grandchildren or adult kids to help them do that. And guess what? Older people now have a much lower digital divide because they've not only adopted smartphones, but they too go to WebMD and everywhere online for peer-to-peer -peer support. We've seen a real change in that patient, whether younger, millennial, or older, boomer and upwards, taking on DIY health in this era of the patient morphing into the payer. So that's the name of the first chapter of my book. What does that mean, the patient as the payer? And what does that mean for the health system? It means you're not only dealing with the employer as a payer, the union as a payer, the association health plan as a payer, the government, but now you got to deal at the end of the day with the patient as the payer. Ultimately, if that patient doesn't first make the appointment, to schedule because uh, due to costs, they don't feel they can afford a copay, a coinsurance, or feel otherwise underinsured. You're not going to get them into the health system for that first encounter. Second, 
once they come to the encounter, will they pay their bill upon checking out? Or do you have a friendly bill paying plan uh, that is in real English for real people so that people feel respected in the bill paying process? There are a large number of startups and newer companies who are dealing with just that part of the patient journey, billing and payment in the uh, whole area called revenue cycle management. This patient is the consumer. You can't talk me uh, out of that today. Ten years ago, Paul Krugman in the New York Times wrote uh, an op-ed saying the patient is the con- it can never be a consumer. And um, I rarely argue with Paul Krugman on anything, but I have argued with him on that and still still do, though I think he's softened on that as well ten years later. In any case, that's my take on this new consumer who is empowered and enraged largely because of bills, costs, and we see people now driven to vote on the basis of healthcare costs and prescription drug costs and pre-existing conditions as their number one issue above immigration taxes and every single other issue in the last couple of years of the Kaiser Family Foundation tracking polls. One thing I really enjoy about your perspective, uh, Jane, is that you, you really look at the entire life cycle of the consumer and a lot of a lot of organizations they they may approach it looking at critical conversion funnels so to speak in that journey but you're looking at it from from you know beginning to the end because i think that 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 does play a role in the consumer in healthcare that they're they're now looking at the entire experience in a much different way and now one thing too that i've seen over the years is the more information that's exposed the more complicated it becomes often. How do you feel uh, about the current you know, landscape of all the different, not only health systems, but other entrants into the marketplace that are maybe impacting the overall experience? The word you continue to use since we started the podcast is experience. And that's really the focus. The, if the patient is the payer, he, she, it wants an Amazon or a similar type retail experience that's streamlined, that's got transparency and choice and buoys the patient as a consumer in terms of that experience. So the Disney Institute, for example, is really growing in healthcare because people want to know how can we enchant uh, the patient experience. Um, and so you look at Bruce Temkin's surveys over the years on uh, what kinds of organizations delight people, consumers in general. And at the top, you see things like grocery stores and theme parks and even fast food, which is the rise of uh, Chick-fil-A for for whatever you might feel about Chick-fil-A's politics with the LGBTQ community. And I have strong feelings about that. Uh, people want their fried chicken sandwiches, as we've seen in mass in mass media and, and grocery uh, discussions in the last in the last year or two. I say this in the context that health plans in the Temkin index in 2018 came out as low as car sales people and ISPs like Comcast and Verizon. You know how miserable it is to wait on the phone in an outage uh, for your Wi-Fi. And we all get frustrated because connectivity is our lifeblood these days. So health plans, uh, as an example of one sector segment of a consumer experience, are really low in experience ratings, the experience index. All these new entrants and or growing legacy players like retail pharmacy in particular, whether CVS or Walgreens or the Walmart health and beauty aisles, they already get 
the consumer experience on the pure retail front, getting millions of people through their doors every week. And so that language, that skill set needs to be more adopted in the legacy healthcare system, in hospitals, in health insurance, in pharma, pharmaceutical life sciences, and pharmacy, the pharmacies that aren't so pleasant to experience. So service design, CX, UX, all those skills that banks like Capital One and their cafes use to delight people. And I've been in a Capital One cafe. I am a customer in uh, the money market part of that business. And um, it is a delightful thing to drink amazing Pete's coffee, right? High quality coffee in that environment and sign up for a mortgage or a car loan at the same time in a very consumer friendly way. Um, so people have talked about the Apple Genius Bar as, as you know, the equivalent of something like that. Well, what is the equivalent in healthcare? Let's then think about Best Buy. Uh, Best Buy, which we all know through our consumer electronics love, uh, and they, they sell everything from fridges to big screen TVs and increasingly healthcare devices like um, connected toothbrushes and personal emergency response systems. Best Buy is making a huge bet that in five years they'll have a 50 billion B dollar business in aging at home, helping people stay home aging with sensors and all these connected health devices. Best Buy understands that they can't just be in retail competing with Amazon that way. They need to have sort of service as a service. Um, and so you think Geek Squad meets nurse practitioners, meets uh, tablets, um, meeting older people coming into the store saying, I need to get one of your health geeks, um, and they'll repurpose that name in some way, to come to the house and those people might see a carpet that's loose, uh, so could prevent a slippage of somebody to fall. Look at a refrigerator that's old and um, not really keeping keeping things at, 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 a, at a good temperature for health, etc. And of course, set up that person with everything from a connected thermometer to blood pressure to um, digital um, glucometer uh, for, for managing diabetes, which then could connect back to the EHR or a health plan health coach. So um, these new entrants get design, they get service, and they get convenience and accessibility. So just as many retail pharmacies say, we're, we're three miles uh, uh, close to you know 90% of American households. Best Buy recently said their 990 some stores are within 10 miles of 75% of Americans. That's powerful. Many of us that have been born and raised in health systems or had their professional careers like myself within a health system, you're talking about things that are impacting the experience that are much more broader than the things that traditionally uh, people within the care settings have been thinking about. Because experience truly drives behavior within the entire decision plan, yet many of these influences to that experience are things that we haven't been tracking, which kind of leads us a little bit to an understanding of the social determinants of health. In my book, Health Consuming, the second to the last chapter is called Zip Codes, Genetic Codes, Food, and Health. And we know from work I did way back with Institute for the Future, we did a, a forecast for Robert Wood Johnson Foundation looking at a 2010 
10, if you can believe it, like 10 years, well, it was like eight years off. And that's where we, we started talking about social determinants and the early research on that, finding that only about 20% of a person's overall health and well-being is attributable to medical services. So hospital care, doctor care, and 80% comes from everything else, environmental factors, lifestyle choices, um, etc. Now, when we think about lifestyle choices being as much as 50, 60 percent, uh, lifestyle is determinant by that zip code, where you live, where you were born, who your parents were. And uh, the economic attribution to that is socioeconomic status. How much money did you have? Did your parents have when you were born? Were they able to send you to a school that was a quote, good school, um, where you could finish your bat your, um, diploma and then move on to college when if it was appropriate for you to go to college if that was where you wanted to be um etc etc so education 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 is the number one social determinant in the work that i've done the research i've done and even when we look at uh the quote deaths of despair from accidental death overdose and suicide that uh term deaths of despair was coined by two researchers who happened to be married and case and sir angus deaton at princeton in new jersey in their work on deaths of despair uh found a direct correlation between ed education, and that is one year of college, makes all the difference in looking at the, these statistics in the deaths of white men between 40 and 55. It's incredible what their data have shown. A lot of their research is on the Brookings Institute website, brookings.edu, on deaths of despair. In any case, I've also written about a lot of my blog. But the fact is social determinants are everything when we're thinking about the health of our fellow Americans and really our health citizens of the world. Education, access to healthy food, um, transportation that's active and available, um, medical services. So access to healthcare is indeed a social determinant of health on its own, largely transportation and income related. And then um, the last few years, I've called out broadband and connectivity as a social determinant of health. I wrote a Huffington Post column about that a few years ago. Uh, titled Broadband is a Social Determinant of Health. And then I was thrilled that a year later, AMIA, the Medical Informatics Association, wrote a piece, a policy piece on their site saying broadband is a social determinant of health. So we're getting there. The FCC, though, looking against things like net neutrality and slow lanes and fast lanes, that just exacerbates digital disparities. And if we consider broadband and connectivity to the N of one, not just in a town, but does the patient slash consumer have a access to a connectivity plan, a data plan that may be too expensive. As we look at the future of Medicare Advantage and Medicaid, I imagine a time when a plan will gift or heavily, heavily subsidize a data plan for a new phone because we can't do telehealth to the person without that connection. And so in rural areas and underserved areas and in underinsured populations, if we're doing population health, 
we better be doing stuff remotely. As you introduced this question, you talked about the life cycle of the patient, the, co the co continuity of life of that patient, or the touch points in a day. That's what service designers look at, you know, the pain points in a day. And so connecting to a good connection, a fast connection, will be increasingly important if we really mean to get to the quadruple aim in American healthcare. And it re really reinforces the role that all of these digital self-service tools have in the future state of healthcare. But it also outlines a very complex situation to address, to look at. And many of the people listening in, they come from within a hospital or a health system. They, they have only a, a small sphere of influence on the overall experience. The future state sounds like it's going to involve many different players in the marketplace. Is that right? That's right. We have to take an ecosystem-wide view to, for the benefit of the patient. If we really want to be patient-consumer-centered, and you think about that patient in the center of their world, because healthcare is personal, then what are all of the touch points in their personal health ecosystem, which deal with food and finance? And yes, healthcare, and maybe they get their vaccines at a grocery store or a pharmacy. This calls for partnerships and collaborations in new ways beyond just your local other healthcare players. Some communities, the faith-based institution, the church, the mosque, the synagogue, play a huge role. I've worked um, perennially with a group of women, black women in a North Philly area, not far from Temple University, and um, had a peer-to-peer -peer network in a private Facebook group sharing healthy recipes um, with these ladies who wear gorgeous hats to church on Sunday, and the, the women who belong to this group are all people managing type 2 diabetes, so we share recipes that are healthful and that can be brought to the potluck after church. And this is one thing I can do to keep real in my world um, and just um, being friends with these folks and supporting a little tiny bit of their health journey. So we're looking at, you know, these kinds of collaborations where hospitals, plans, uh, multi-specialty physician groups should assess their community in the way we used to look at, you know, community impact statements in a local area to figure out all the free care that should be given. And that's a, a huge huge uh, issue that's just been talked about this week in a study on our non-for-profit hospitals really anting up the amount of charity care they should. Collaborations are the new black. A hospital must work in the local community for the needs of their patients to stay relevant for their patients' life lives. And that means work with your grocery stores, work with your local banks, because you know people are wrestling with medical bills and late payments. The people are strapped for cash, living paycheck to paycheck, and healthcare costs get um, delayed in payment when they're not rosy and people delay care and those on the phone in the healthcare legacy system of hospitals, physician offices and plans do not want a patient to postpone necessary care. That ends up with the patient sicker later, costing the system and themselves more money, the plan, the physician, the hospital in further financial uh, distress. Again, these collaboratives are important. Healthy food, good finances, safe um, homes, clean air, clean water. All that 
all those social determinants are really just living metrics to, to an average person, the patient as consumer. So the more um, folks can collaborate across the silos of healthcare and build local healthcare ecosystems, or we could call them accountable care communities, that's a really good lens to put on a situation like this in terms of an opportunity. How do you see this evolving over the next couple of years? Regardless of what happens in politics at the federal level, we have to take control over what we can control. So there are things we can't control and things we can control and influence. Um, one, I don't see it as bleak if we do these things. We need to start loving each other again, thinking of ourselves as a community, as brothers and sisters in our community. I don't say that lightly. I say that like our founding fathers uh, thought of us as a community when they founded this country on the basis of all the freedoms that you know they needed to they needed to get to, um, and we we are a community. If we reach out to each other, we also need to reach out to each other because there's a loneliness epidemic out there. Which Cigna has done a great job on their loneliness index. That's bleak. The current situation is bleak because too many people, particularly older people and younger people, living on their phones and technology are um, really separate from human touch. And we need to bring that back in our communities, which I think retail players can do. I spend a lot of time in London, where I used to live and I still work. There's a department store chain called Marks and Spencer. It has a concept called the Frazzled Cafe, F-R-A-Z-Z-L-E-D, or I should say Z-Z-L-E-D Cafe, which was inspired by a British comedian called Ruby Wax. Ruby has been very public about her mental health issues, and Ruby inspired the Frazzled Cafe in Marks and Spencer's cafes. Um, a night a week, those cafes host people to come together in their community. You don't pay you don't join, you just show up to be together, to talk about your anguishes, your anxieties, your stressors. This is just one tiny example of how we can reach out to each other in a retail setting. A hospital can do this with a local bank, a local grocery store, a senior center, a faith-based institution, and one of my favorite organizations and communities to reach out to for, for the legacy health system is the Y. The YMCA has diabetes prevention programs and heart disease health programs and all kinds of programs for young people, older people, etc. You can match up grandparents to kids, you know, virtually um, or in real time at, at a Y, for example, the way the digital program Papa is doing uh, to match college students with seniors in their community. So I, I think there's tons of opportunities for your listeners to collaborate in their communities with starting with some low-hanging fruit, whether it's this loneliness issue, a food security issue, to get a couple of your hospital nutritionists in the local grocery store to help consumers walking in, say, with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes, build a healthy grocery cart. And there's the nutritionist wearing the hospital badge 
collaborating with the pharmacist. Um, so there's all kinds of, of small projects that can be done to bolster the relevancy and the presence of the institution in the community. Because I can tell you, um, my kid's 24. She really doesn't understand the benefit of a, quote, medical home, a physician relationship at this point of her life. You know, she doesn't even care if she has the same person doing her pap smear every year. So um, hospitals and health systems, the way they've been organized and delivering care may seem irrelevant to younger uh, health citizens going forward. And we need to think about being where our patients are. And that, again, gets to the heart of design and really knowing that consumer lifestyle 24-7 and from birth to um, old age. Every time I talk to you, I feel this renewed sense of energy and, and hope for the future state. And I appreciate that. I really do. Now, you have a lot of resources. We mentioned them at the beginning of the interview uh, that I would love to share them again. So our audience, if they want to find out more about you online, share with us ways they can reach you. Sure. Well, the blog is Health Populi, health, P-O-P-U-L-I dot com. Then uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Healthy Thinker, Healthy, T-H-I-N-K-E-R. That's based on my company name, Think Health. I'm Healthy Thinker. My new book, Health Consuming, one word, is, of course, on Amazon, print or Kindle. There's a website for the book, www.healthconsuming.com. Thank you so much for all of your ideas and thoughts today. For those listening in, we're going to link to all of those resources she mentioned on our show notes. So thank you so much, Jane, for your time today. Chris, thank you. It was so delightful to be with you. Special thanks again to uh, Jane Saracen Khan for coming on the show. Um, her thought leadership and the things that she writes, publishes, are always things that we tend to share in uh, kind of like our weekly newsletters and certainly just uh, personally on Twitter and things like that. So it was great to have her on the show. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from her, I believe if you kind of go back in the uh, in the annals of Touchpoint Media, you'd find her on a uh, Data Point episode from some time back. So go check, uh, go check that one out with uh, Greg Matthews. So a couple of things before we get to recommendations, Chris, you want to talk a little bit about the uh, ShishMed Mayo Clinic now free conference? Free virtual conference on June 2nd and 3rd. That's right, virtual. It's free, doesn't cost a cent, and you don't have to leave your home. What more can you want? Uh, it's the Advanced Healthcare Social Media and Digital Marketing Conference. This is a collaboration between Mayo Clinic Social Media Network and ShishMed. And it's focused on best practices, new trends, successful strategies, and healthcare social media. A variety of different speakers. I'm going to be speaking there, but a number of other people talking, including I'll, I'll list one or two presentation topics. CEOs taking a stand. How do CEO, CEOs build a national thought leadership position? And supporting patients with Facebook groups and online communities. That should be a very interesting topic as well and really relevant in this day and age. That's for sure. So uh, take a look. We have a link in the show notes. You can learn a little bit more and mark your calendars, June 2nd and 3rd. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's do a couple of uh, recommendations. What do, you, uh, what do you have today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a TV show that I am absolutely in love with. HBO has released some of their programming for free. And one of those shows is a series called Succession. Have you ever heard about this show? I have heard of it, have not seen it. 
It is amazing. It's a story of a family, a very uh, well-to-do family that comprises an international media conglomerate. And it focuses on the family itself and, and the family dynamics, loosely fashioned after some real life families that are, are international media conglomerates, so to speak. But uh, it really goes into the politics of running a business. It's set in the office space. The first season is very compelling story. The the son who is heir successor to the entire enterprise, uh, his father is now 80 years old. He tries to do a coup and overthrow his father as leader of this international media conglomerate. Such intrigue, such politics, great acting. It's almost like watching a modern day version of like a Game of Thrones or, you know, those those kinds of like where you see royals trying to overtopple one another. This is really a great show. Very compelling. I just, I, I'm binging it. I just cannot stop watching it. It's definitely an adult program, not for children, but it's really worth it. Succession. There you go. Very cool. I've also got a show which I'll actually save for next week. So I'm going to do an app uh, that I downloaded. It's called Picture This, all one word, Plant Identifier. So it's an app. You, you download it for your phone or iPad and you take a picture of a plant and it tells you what it is. And which in and of itself is kind of interesting, but it will also, you know, diagnose problems with the plant and things like that. And so give you tips and all those kinds of good stuff. So people like to work in the garden or be outside or just want to, uh, you know, you're out on the daily walk and you're like, what, what is that? You know, I'd like to purchase some of those to put in my house or whatever it is. Anyway, it's kind of an interesting app, you know, with the use of AI and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's called Picture This and it is surprisingly accurate. Wow, I'm going to have to download that. Uh, there is a paid version of it. Uh, the free version you know, gets you some of the basic features and stuff like that, but you can uh, check that out. It's called Picture This. All right. Well, another great, uh, another great episode, another great week. Uh, Touchpoint.health is the website. Sign up for the TPS report, our weekly email. You can do that over at the website as well. Check out some of the new shows. We mentioned the new normal uh, earlier. Go over there, rate, review, subscribe. We certainly appreciate it. Tell your friends and family. There's one way you can help us out. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.